so well. And unknowingly, you set us up for our message this morning from God's word. We're going to be in James chapter 5. So go ahead and turn there if you haven't already. And um, let's, let's just commit this time to the Lord in prayer. Lord, our God, Heavenly Father, we are gathered this morning to worship you, the one true God. And we've, we've sung songs of praise and enjoyed the fellowship of communion. Lord, as we open your word now, may it be a lamp unto our feet. As we look at the book of James this morning, we need your light to shine on us. Show us what we need to see this morning. Through your word, encourage us, comfort us, exhort us, draw us closer to you, for we need you, Lord. Lead us, Holy Spirit, that we might be better equipped to serve our awesome and mighty God. In Jesus' name, amen. Here's a question for you. Do you consider yourself trustworthy? Do you ever find yourself saying things like, let me be honest with you, or trust me on this. Or have you ever said, I promise I'll do this or that. We're constantly giving and seeking words of assurance, aren't we? Trustworthiness. Here's another question. Do you consider yourself a patient person? Have you ever maybe prayed, um, Lord, give me patience and please hurry? Or have you ever thought of patience as being that, uh, that virtue that you practice whenever there are witnesses? In our passage today, James has some very practical thoughts, um, some insight for us with regard to being patient and to being trustworthy. Now, throughout the letter, James has presented a number of challenges, a number of self-examinations that we can give ourselves, urging people then and us to look at ourselves objectively, to see how our lives bear out or don't our faith in Christ. He's given us a bunch of checkpoints, ways for us to see whether the faith that we profess is alive or dead. James continues to hit us where we live with practical ways to lovingly and obediently live out our faith. So let's jump in and see what God has to say about us being patient. Read with, uh, follow along as we read in James chapter 5, starting in verse 7. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too, be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed, that it, who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. 
was Paul's theory. You might remember that the letter of James opened with a call for those in Christ to be patient in their trials, to endure. In chapter 1, verse 2, we read, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Now, as the letter draws to a close, we again find a call for the people to be patient. And this is, this is really a command. It's an admonishment. There's an imperative here. And we all need that call to be patient, don't we? Impatience is really our natural state, isn't it? So why should we be patient? Well, we get a clue in that we're told to be patient until the coming of the Lord. Three times James brings up the coming of the Lord in these verses, emphasizing that we are to live, as Paul wrote to Titus, when he said, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Do we, in fact, eagerly long for Christ's return? Can we wholeheartedly echo John's plea at the close of the book of Revelation? Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. The more we are caught up in enjoying the good things of this life, the more we're inclined to neglect the fellowship of our Christian family. We're more inclined to neglect our personal relationship with Jesus. And the result is that we're less eager for his return. On the other hand, for many believers who are experiencing suffering and persecution, those who are striving to live a life consistent with their faith in Christ, there's a more intense longing for his return. The desire of their heart is to be with Jesus. Is that the desire of your heart? Now you may be thinking, well, how can this return be imminent for those folks 2,000 years ago and yet imminent for us today? And that's a, that's a good question. That's a fair question. Peter gives us an answer in his uh, second epistle when he says, do not let this one fact escape your, no your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. We got to remember, God is not constrained by time and space. Christ's return is the next big event on God's agenda. Patiently waiting, expectantly hoping for Jesus to return, does not mean that we abandon all earthly pursuits. On the con contrary, we're to be actively living out our faith, engaged in whatever work he has called us to. This is precisely why we are not given the time of his return, so that we can fully live in the world today and constantly expect his return at any moment. 
Daniel Doriani points out that scripture never promotes the question, when will Christ return? It always promotes the question, will you be ready when he returns? Well, we live in this world today. We should not expect to have everything easy, right? It's not going to be comfortable. Jesus said, as Simon already pointed out, in this world, you will have tribulation. As Paul traveled about encouraging new converts, he said this, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. We are to patiently endure hardships and heartaches until Christ returns. I, I was sorely tempted to really geek out on the Greek here, but I do need to point out to you that there are at least two words for patience here, two different words. In verses 7, 8, and 10, the word has the connotation of being long-tempered or long-suffering. But then in verse 11, we see a different word, and I think in the NAS it's translated endure or endurance, and it literally means to remain under, and it speaks of patience under great stress. So commentators and Greek scholars seem to pretty much agree that long-suffering refers to patience with respect to people. Well, endurance refers to patience with respect to conditions or situations. So patience dealing with people and all the way to patience dealing with circumstances. That pretty well covers the spectrum of things that we need to be patient with, doesn't it? So the question for us then is this, how can we as Christians experience this kind of patient endurance as we wait for the Lord's return? Well, in this passage, we're given several keys to understanding and applying patience that endures. And we've already covered the first one. And that first one is to live in anticipation of the Lord's return. James inserts an example for us here, the farmer. In James' day, farming was not for the faint-hearted and certainly not for the impatient. That's still true today. My grandfathers were both farmers, and my folks had a farm when I was growing up. And I got to spend quite a bit of time on a farm. Um, so I, I can relate, I can appreciate this analogy of a farmer here, um, at least to some degree. Now, the thing about analogies is that if you try and push them too far, they generally break down. And that's because, well, they're analogies. So let's see how far we can go with this one. So the farmer, what does he do? He works, he plows, he tills the soil, he plants the seed, and then he waits. And he waits for something that's outside of his control. He waits for rain. He needs that early rain to come so that the, the seeds will sprout. And then he needs the later rains to come so that the crop actually matures and can be harvested. Rain, though, depends on God's providence. So the product of the farmer's work combined with God's providence is precious fruit. 
it's valuable. The farmer's very existence depends on that crop. The farmer has to have patience. He has to wait for his reward, that precious fruit. And no amount of worrying or fussing or ranting or raving is going to speed up the process. Look again at verse 8. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near. Be patient. Be like the farmer. And to do so, you need to strengthen your heart. I like the King James here because it says establish your heart. And this is the same word that we find in Luke um, chapter 9, verse 51, where it says, Jesus steadfastly set his face to, to go to Jerusalem. It's resoluteness, it's, it's determination. Um, establish your heart. It's an attitude of courage. It's an attitude of commitment. No matter what. I am going to go confidently forward. This idea of strengthening the heart and establishing it is often attributed to God in Scripture. Consider 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, where we find Paul saying, So that he, God, may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of the Lord Jesus with all his saints. Or 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. God is in the thick of all areas of Christian living. Indeed, he alone deserves the credit. For our part, we do have to make a commitment. We have to determine. We have to set our face. And that's just another example of this amazing tension that exists between our sovereign and holy God and our response to him. The only way our hearts can be firmly established is through the work of the Holy Spirit. We can't do it ourselves. But it does take our willing commitment to that work. Now, this isn't the first time that James has dealt with the heart. He's called out wavering, unstable, unestablished hearts several times. Back in chapter 1, he said, but he must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. In the first part of chapter 2, James talks about people who are partial, showing favoritism. They're dodging the truth. They're vacillating. They're, they're unstable. Chapter 3, oh, that, that great passage at the first part of, of chapter 3 on the tongue and how it can't be tamed. In verse 10, he says this. He talks about the tongue and how it reflects the heart. And then he says, blessing and cursing come from the same mouth. 
That's equiv equivocation. That's, again, vacillating. That's un unstable. Chapter 4, verse 4. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You can't have it both ways. You can't have one foot in the kingdom and one foot in the world. You'll be out of balance. It's unstable. He goes on in, in chapter 4 there, and in verse 8 gives us this beautiful invitation. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. James has consistently addressed the issue of an unestablished heart and called for our hearts to be established, to be stable. So another of the keys to enduring patience is an established heart. And that's only possible through the work of the Holy Spirit in the committed heart of the believer. So how's your commitment? Is your heart firmly established? Well, one final thought on the farmer, and maybe I'm pushing the analogy a bit here, but I think there's a spiritual parallel which Galatians chapter 6, verse 9 helps us to see. We read there, let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. God is producing a harvest in our lives, precious fruit. But it doesn't come all at once. It takes time. Just as the farmer needs seed, soil, and water to grow a crop, we need the word of God. We need an established heart. And we need faith that is tested through tribulation and suffering for that spiritual fruit to mature in our lives. If you're going to experience patient endurance, you need to live in anticipation of the Lord's coming. You need to have an established heart. And another key to patience that endures is recognizing the coming judgment. In verse 9, we see, Do not complain, brethren, against one another. Now, the word complain here means to sigh, to murmur, to groan with grief internally, inaudibly. This is a condition of the spirit, a, a condition of the heart. This kind of grumbling is often a sign of what? Impatience. Think about this for a minute. Persecution and suffering can cause what? Frustration. And frustration, as it builds and, and we churn that internally, it produces bitterness. And so we get this feedback loop where we, we are grumbling and it frustrates us and we get bitter and that makes us grumble more and it just goes on. Ultimately, the complaining spirit manifests itself in our relationships with one another and it's not ever good now understanding the cause is not an excuse 
we need to remember grumbling and complaining are merely symptoms of a heart that's out of tune with God's heart. In effect, James is saying here, get your heart right so that you don't sin by complaining against one another. Now, there's really a good reason for us to follow this admonition. If we continue on in verse 9, what do we find? So that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. That's a good reason. Jesus Christ is at the courtroom door, and when he opens that door and comes in, court will be in session, and you better be ready to face that day. There are two aspects to the Lord's coming, and they both help us to live patiently. First, we're to live in the hope of Christ's return. Because that will mean an end to suffering, an end to trials. And it brings us the joy of spending eternity with him. But it also means that we should recognize his coming means judgment. And as judge, he brings something for everyone. For believers, he brings rewards. For pretenders and non-believers, his judgment means condemnation and punishment. Well, in verse 10, we find another key. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. So the prophets were the ones who spoke the word of God in the name of God. Now, wrapped up in the name of the Lord is all that he is, all that he has done and all that he wills. So the prophets have spoken of all these, all that God is, all that he has done, all that he wills for mankind. They've spoken the word of God, and they are our examples. If you're going to have patience that endures, then follow the example of the Lord's servants. Prophets. They were long-tempered. They were patient with people. They faced great difficulty. They faced great hostility. They faced tremendous rejection. All of that because they were true to the word of God. Remember the story of Stephen? In chapters 6 and 7 of Acts, we find Stephen falsely accused of blasphemy and dragged before the council. He addresses them, recounting Israel's history, starting with Abraham and relating tragedy after tragedy of unbelief in their history. The rejection of the prophets of God and ultimately the rejection of God himself in Jesus Christ. Stephen ends his account with famous words. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. And the Jews killed him on the spot. They, they stoned Stephen to death because he indicted them for the murder of the prophets and for the murder of the very Son of God, even Jesus Christ. So let's consider some other examples of prophets. How about Moses, who endured a stiff-necked, whiny, and rebellious people, and yet he was faithful and meek? 
How about David, who was hunted by Saul? And yet, he trusted God. He waited patiently for deliverance. And he wrote those beautiful psalms about the saving power of God. Think of Elijah, King Ahab, and Queen Jezebel. They were after him all the time, trying to kill him. And yet he was faithful to speak God's words of judgment, even though he thought he was the only prophet of God left alive. How about Jeremiah? Persecuted, imprisoned, plotted against, and yet he was able to say, why should any living mortal, any man, offer complaint? in view of his own sins. Daniel was deported to a pagan country, cast into a den of lions. He endured with great faith. Hosea, oh my, whose marriage was a disaster and a heartbreak for him. But in that very heartbreak came God's message to the people. Hosea was so patient. Hebrews 11 talks about these heroes of the faith and sums it up in verse, starting in verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword, they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. These, these are our examples. And then we find going on in Hebrews chapter 12, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance, that's patience, the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So the keys to patient endurance are anticipate the Lord's coming, live with an established heart, recognize the Lord's judgment, and follow the Lord's servants. Take them for your model. Next, we find we should understand the Lord's blessing. The be verse 11 begins with these words. We count those blessed 
who endure. Now, in general, we consider people who endure through trials to be blessed. And that's consistent in Scripture. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, where Jesus said, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Or 1 Peter 3, 14, But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Blessing is associated with patiently enduring sufferings, trials, and temptations. And that flies right in the face of what we hear as the, the prosperity gospel. You won't find that kind of uh, proclamation from someone who believes the prosperity gospel. Now, it's been rightly said that blessings do not come to people who do great things. No, blessings come to people who endure great things. How do we endure? By having our hearts established through the work of the Holy Spirit. And isn't that a blessing, to have the Holy Spirit at work in your heart? And isn't it a blessing when your patience, when your endurance shines so brightly that other people look and say, that's not natural. And that brings honor and glory to God. It's a blessing to be closer to our Lord, isn't it? In our trials and in our tribulations, in our suffering, we draw closer to God, don't we? And he draws closer to us. Those are just some of the blessings that we receive in this life. And there are even greater blessings to come as we spend eternity with him. We need to understand that God blesses those who patiently endure. He does so in this life and in the life to come. What a marvelous thought. That should motivate us. That should inspire us. That should encourage us in patient endurance. Going on in verse 11, James gives us the last example of patient endurance. You have heard of the endurance, the patience of Job, and have seen the outcome or the purpose of the Lord's dealings. So the key to patient endurance that we find here is realize the Lord's purpose. The story of Job was one of the most popular and most familiar stories within the Jewish tradition. Everyone knew the story of Job. The righteous man who endured great tragedy and suffering that was vindicated by his compassionate God, whose faithfulness humiliated Satan. Now, just in case you haven't read Job lately, here's a high-level summary. There was this godly man named Job. He had a family. He was wealthy. He was well-respected. He was an all-around good guy. So one day, Satan comes to God and says, I don't think there's a man on earth who can remain true to you. God said, sure there is. Look at Job. Satan said, prove it. God said, okay. You can do anything to him, um, but you can't kill him. And you're going to see that he's a faithful man, totally committed to me. So Satan went after Job, took away his family, killed his children, took away all his crops and his land and his possessions and everything he owned, took away his health 
ravaged his body with disease and, and severe physical discomfort. And in all this, Job never wavered. He endured. He complained to God, mostly about his dumb friends who were giving him stupid answers about what was going on as they tried to console him. And his wife, ah, his, his helpmate, his better half, told him to curse God and die. But he refused to do it. And in the midst of all this, Job, Job had the audacity to say things like this. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. What an incredible God. He endured and then he endured and he endured some more. No wonder the patience of Job became a saying. Yeah, he cried out to God in his confusion and, and he maintained his innocence even as he listened to his friends and their platitudes and their misinformed ideas that he was somehow at fault in all this. And he endured and he endured and he did not sin with his mouth. In his agony, Job cried out again and again to God. He was seeking an audience so that he might lay his grievances before God and, and he longed for some kind of explanation and answer from God as to why this was all happening to him. And in the end, God does speak with Job, but not to answer his questions. After God speaks, Job says, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. Now I know who you are, God, I never saw you in my good times as clearly as I see you in my bad times. I see who you are. So what was God's purpose with Job? Well, Job's faith was put to the test, and it was proved to be real. Job's faith was strengthened, and he saw God more clearly. Job's faith demonstrated his love and trust in God no matter what the cost. And that, <laughs> that humiliated Satan and brought glory to God. In the end, Job's blessedness was increased. His health was restored. His family reconstituted and his wealth replaced. Well, not only replaced, it was doubled. James says, you know the patience of Job and have seen the purpose of the Lord. It's clear in Job's case that God had a goal in mind. Greater blessing than Job had ever known before and greater glory for God. So what's God's purpose with you? Could it be the same? What does Romans 8 verse 28 say? God works all things together for good for those who love him. I know, I know that is true. I'm confident that that's valid. But there are times, I have to confess, there are times 
when I want to cry out, Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be silent. Like Job, I want to cry out to God for an explanation. Why this trial? Why now? What good can come of this? Patient endurance does not depend on our understanding or even on God's explanations. Patient endurance rests in our confidence in God's good purpose. Praise God, we do not have to understand how and why. Praise God that he has a purpose that is for our good and for his glory, regardless of whether we see it or not. Now, the last part of verse 11 gives us yet another key to patience that endures. Consider the Lord's character. You have heard that the, of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. Whatever you're going through, the Lord is compassionate. He is merciful. He is tender and he cares for you. And that's his character and he cannot be otherwise. That's why Peter could tell us, cast all your cares on him for he cares for you. Recall the words of Jesus? In this world, you will have tribulations. Whatever you're going through, whether it's physical, spiritual, emotional, economic, the decay of age, the ravages of cancer, maybe you're struggling in your marriage, maybe you're struggling with your kids, maybe there are trials and conflicts in your job. These are trials that come our way as part of living in a fallen world. But there is a God who cares for you, and he is merciful to you and full of compassion for you. How do we live out patience that endures as we're commanded to do? Well, we live in the anticipation of the Lord's coming, Recognizing that he comes with blessed hope and with judgment. We live with an established heart, resolutely committed to the Lord and experiencing the work of the Holy Spirit in our heart. We live by the examples of the Lord's servants, the prophets, and of course the greatest example, Jesus. We live with the understanding that patient endurance brings the Lord's blessing. And we rest Oh, we rest in the Lord's assurance that he has a purpose. We rest in the unchangeable character of our merciful and compassionate God. And we live a life consistent with our faith in Jesus Christ. Well, we come now to another admonition, which we find in verse 12. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. If you're wondering about what this verse is doing here, maybe thinking, um, I'm not sure how these verses, this verse ties with the verses that 
were just before, well, you're not alone. And if you glance ahead and you don't see how this verse relates to the verses that follow, then you've got a lot of company. See, theologians have debated and scholars have discussed and commentators have discoursed about how this verse fits or how it doesn't fit for many, many, many years. But the meaning here is pretty clear, and the meaning is pretty well agreed upon. Now, the interpretations of how it fits are interesting, and they're, they're actually kind of fun to think about, but the meaning and the application are practical helps for us as we live lives consistent with our faith in Christ Jesus. Now, these opening words, they kind of grab our attention, don't they? But above all, hey, guys, this is important. Pay attention here. Don't miss this. But it does, however, beg the question, above all, what? James has shifted the subject somewhat from the previous verses, and he's come back, I think, to one of his prevalent themes, and that's... Um, speech, the tongue, and how it reveals what's in our hearts. So my thinking is that it could be that the intent here is to emphasize that what follows is the most important thing he has to say about speech. This is where I've landed after looking at this for, for some time. And there are other ideas out there that are probably equally as good. So with that disclaimer, let's remind ourselves of what James has already said about speech. Chapter 1, verse 26, if anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. So at issue here is a man deceiving himself, and in that deceit, he is only harming himself. In James chapter 2, verse 12, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. The context here is that favoritism, playing favorites. So not only are the words and the actions wrong, but another person is being harmed by those words and those actions. Chapter 3, uh, verses 9 and 10, this is again, part of that famous discourse on the tongue. Um, with, with it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Who can tame the tongue? Blessing the creator and cursing his creation and all coming out of the same mouth. Now this offense is, is getting more widespread. This is going further afield. And then in James 4, verse 11, we find, Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. Now here we have an offense that is not only potentially widespread, but it's also an offense against God's law. The stakes have, have been raised. Now, these are all bad things. And you could, I think, make a case 
for there being something of a progression here, uh, each offense getting worse than the previous one, and then culminating with, but above all, that we find here in verse 12. Now, regardless of whether there's a progression, what we find in chapters 1 through 4 are all bad things coming from where? From the man's heart, through their mouth. And the worst one, though, is found here in verse 12. So what is it that James wants us to be aware of? Well, he says very clearly, do not swear. Well, what does swear mean? Maybe we need a little context and definition. First, let's think about what's not in mind here. James isn't talking about profanity, cussing, four-letter words, double entendre, things like that. Um, those are bad, yes, but it's not what James had in mind. We also need to realize that there is such a thing as a proper oath, an oath where it's okay to swear. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, uh, verse 13, God, God commands the Israelites to swear by his name if and when they do take an oath. An oath or swearing actually has three parts. First, there's attesting to the truth. Second, there's calling for God to be a witness. And third, there's invoking God's punishment for a violation. So if you say, I swear to God, you're actually saying, I am telling the truth and I want God to bear witness that I am telling the truth and I want God to punish me if I'm not telling the truth. This is very serious. It's, it's not something to be taken lightly. It's only to be used on rare occasions. But appropriate swearing in God's name, it's not what James was talking about here. Now, examples of that kind uh, could be like the ordination of a minister or, or like marriage vows or uh, being sworn in to testify in court. Those are, those are all good and, and fine things. So what was in James' mind? Well, he was referring to a practice that was prevalent and common among the Jews and among Gentile nations. These people wanted to give assurance that they were telling the truth, assurance of their trustworthiness. And they, they were doing that day in and day out, multiple times a day, everyday situations. And they, they would swear, they would take an oath. And you know what? There was and there still is a need for assurance, right? Because by nature, we all lie. Now, the Jews, because they had, you know, that command, third commandment from, from, uh, that we read in Deuteronomy, they were very careful not to invoke the name of God. Rather, they would swear by the temple or by the altar or by heaven or by the hairs on their head. Their belief, their thinking was that if they don't invoke God's name, then they wouldn't, won't be subject to God's punishment. <clears throat> if there were no consequences, though, 
then you could fulfill or neglect any obligation at your whim. It's kind of like, you know, making a promise and having your fingers crossed behind your back. Except these were grown adults. These were not kids at play. Outwardly, they followed or were trying to follow the letter of the law. You know, Exodus 20, <clears throat> verse 7, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. But they didn't follow the intent. Jesus talked about that in Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount. He said, again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Neither shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil. Every word we utter is known to God. So there should never be a need for swearing, for oaths, for vows in everyday speech. Jesus clearly points out the absurdity of swearing by any created thing, no matter how lofty, since God, as creator, is associated with every created thing. And thus, every oath sworn on any created thing thereby profanes God's name by substituting the created for the creator. So our verse in uh, verse 12 here, our text, has a lot in common with what Jesus was saying in Matthew 5. James is in full agreement with Jesus, reminding these early Jewish Christians and us to avoid swearing in inappropriate ways because doing so is taking God's name in vain. It's irreverent, it's demeaning, it's degrading, and God has said that those who disrespect his name are going to be punished. And that makes it pretty clear what we are not to do. But what about what we should do? Well, your yes is to be yes, and your no is to be no. All our speech is to be as though we were already under oath. Everyone should know that when your lips say yes, every fiber of your being is saying yes. Every believer is to be completely trustworthy. And if that's true for the believers, then that will be true for the church. We're called to be different from the world, to be distinct. People who are completely trustworthy all the time, that'd be different, wouldn't it? Well, at the very end of the verse, we find a warning, so that you may not fall under judgment. Now, there's a bit of ambiguity about the word that's translated judgment here. It could mean don't fall into hypocrisy. You know, saying one thing with your lips and harboring another in your heart. It could also mean condemnation. I mean, full-on heaven or hell judgment. 
And I think this ambiguity can actually be helpful for us. For believers, this warning reminds us that we're not perfect. We need to be on guard so that there is no hypocrisy, so that our yes will be honestly and fully yes, and our no will be honestly and fully no. We're reminded, too, that we will give an account for every word that we speak and either receive a reward or forfeit a reward based on those words. For believers, though, our salvation is never in question. For non-believers, for those whose heart has not been transformed by grace, this warning carries the weight of final eternal judgment, heaven or hell. Are your words trustworthy? Do you feel you need to prop up your words with assurances? Do you know in your heart that you play fast and loose with the truth? Skating by on technicalities? On the adhering to the letter of the law only? If that's the case, if that's your habit, if that's your lifestyle, then you better check your, your pulse on, on your faith because your faith may well be dead. Now, in this letter, James has shown us that there are two kinds of faith. Simon already brought us there this morning. There's faith that is dead in this world, devoid of any fruit, and there's faith that is alive in Christ. Now, faith that is dead may profess belief with lips, but when hard times come, there will be no patience to endure. When temptation comes, there will be no strength to be trustworthy. Now, faith that is alive in Christ is characterized by enduring patience in the face of suffering, in the face of trials, in the face of tribulation. Faith that is alive in Christ is steadfastly trustworthy. Yes is always yes. If your wellness check shows that your faith is alive, rejoice. Continue to live your life consistent with faith in your Savior, looking forward to his coming. If your faith is dead, rejoice, for there is one who can give you life. You can receive a new heart, new life. All you have to do is ask Jesus. Would you stand with me and let's pray. Gracious Lord, oh, oh God, it is hard sometimes for us to accept that the world is so messy and trials and suffering are so prevalent and they can come simply because we belong to you. So thank you today for the reminders here of your, your care, your compassion, your mercy, and for blessing us with these so abundantly. May we be encouraged because our God is with us. Holy Spirit, would you continue your work to establish our hearts that we might be resolute and firm in living lives that are consistent with our faith in the one and only Savior, even Jesus Christ, in whose name we dare to even approach the throne of glory. 
Bless us, our God, as we go from here, not because we deserve your blessing. Bless us because you are good and kind. And bless us so that we may in turn be a blessing from you to others. Amen. Thank you for watching.